0: It's Tech Biter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 367 for November 3rd, 2013. This week, if you're tired of spam and would like to make checking your email more efficient, I have a suggestion that'll do both. Ghostery is a clever plug-in for all of the major browsers that makes it possible for you to know who's watching when you surf. In short circuits, Adobe says its recent hack attack was even worse than thought. Allegations about the National Security Agency continue to surface, and following September's recommendations from an advisory committee, the FAA relaxes rules on the use of electronic devices on airplanes. There are estimates that perhaps 80 to 90 percent of all email is spam. Now, we don't see that much, of course, because some of it can clearly be identified, and when that happens, it's eliminated, so it doesn't completely overwhelm ISP's mail servers. But even so, a lot of the junk gets through. When the number of spams that made it through my defenses increased a lot recently, I tried increasing the strength of some filters that I maintain on my server. In one case, I received 10 to 20 messages a day from a convicted fraudster who wanted to sell gold. A few regular expressions removed his spam, but writing regular expressions every few days isn't a good way to fight spam or an easy way. And there has to be something better, I thought. So I started looking for other ways, tried several of them, and when I was just about to give up and go back to writing regular expressions, I ran across Mailwasher. I used the free version for about an hour and decided that it was time to pay the registration fee. It's rare for me to make a decision that quickly, and now two weeks on, I've concluded that it was a very good decision. You can start with the free version of Mailwasher, which will work without restriction for 10 days. During that time, you can set up the program to check any number of email accounts, and I have several. After 10 days, it'll revert to the free version and support only a single email account. For many people, one is enough, but if you appreciate the functionality, and if you have multiple computers, and multiple email accounts, and you'd like to synchronize all these things, upgrading to the Pro version is a really good idea, and it doesn't cost that much. During the installation process, Mailwasher will examine your email programs and import settings and lists of contacts from them. Although I don't use Outlook anymore, Mailwasher found my old Outlook accounts and imported them along with my Thunderbird accounts. The installation process asks users to specify the email application they normally use. This is done so that Mailwasher can turn off automatic email checks in your email program. The goal here is to avoid having your email program check your server before Mailwasher gets around to it. If that would happen, you'd automatically download all the spam that's there. And it will also turn off any option to leave messages on the server most people will already have that turned off. And by the way, Mailwasher works with either POP3 or IMAP accounts. So then you'll start receiving mail through Mailwasher. Suspected spam is marked in red. Messages that are believed to be okay are in green. You can read the full text of any message in Mailwasher before downloading it to your computer. On the Tech Matter Worldwide website, you'll see a view of some of my messages. Even though some of the messages are shown as green or okay, I can read them on the server and then delete them without downloading. This is a particularly useful feature, and I discussed that with the developer of the application, Nick Bolton, in New Zealand.
1: Yeah, they're either um, trying to uh, you know, get you to buy a crap, or they're trying to uh, get you to um, compromise your computer so they can use it to send um, other spam more spam to people, um, so yeah either way you know it's it comes down to probably making money for these guys you 've probably seen recently there 's this um, new type of malware that encrypts all your uh, documents and you have to pay some fee to um, you know uh, get the Get the key to unlock it.
0: Yes, you know? and that's uh, that's fairly expensive. They're talking about uh, three hundred dollars to unlock your files, uh, mm-hmm. and that's and that's assuming that they're actually honest enough to unlock your files after they've locked them.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, um, it's a probably a pretty good business model for them. You know, I imagine they're doing pretty well out of that one.
0: There, there are, there are a lot of methods for fighting these kinds of messages. Some some systems depend entirely on white lists, so anything that comes from somebody who's not on the white list is rejected. Um, uh, there mm-hmm. are challenge response systems, which may be fine for individuals, but they're just death for a business. You can't put something like that on a business account. There are systems that, that try to identify spams in a lot of different ways. So and it seems that uh, that your system uses a, a variety of methods. So let's talk about what you do to identify spam.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, we um, by default, we take a, a bit of a weighted approach, um, which means that we use a lot of different spam tools. And um, it gives an overall points or score of that um, how spammy that message is. And um, so we've got whitelists, we've got blacklists, we've got um, remote uh, blacklists, which are called RBLs. Uh, we've got um, filters, custom filters, and we've got learning um, or Commonly known as Bayesian filtering, where you can teach Mail Washer what's good and what's spam, and it, it learns from that. And uh, that's that's a very accurate way of um, classifying your email. So we, we we sort of combine all those two all those together and um, to give an overall points or spamminess of a of a message um, to the user. And then um, finally, um, the way Mail Washer works is it's kind of like an email checker, so. Um, you can see all the email on your server before it gets to your computer. And uh, Mailwasher will um, accurately mark your messages as good or spam, but you, know, you get to have the last look. Um, just a quick um, look at all your messages, and just uh, to see if they've been correctly classified, and then um, you can just press the wash button, and it removes all the spam messages um, from the server, and all the remaining good messages are uh, downloaded to your
0: computer. Now, the, the the way the Bayesian system works, does does that take into account when a message comes in, it may be classified good, it may be classified bad, or it may not be classified at all. It's just in the middle, and and, and the system really doesn't have enough data to suggest. That it's good or bad. The, the user then yes. goes through it and checks some of them. This one's good. Uh, this one's bad. Uh, and it learns from that process. Yes, yes, that's that's correct. When, when you first start
1: it, it's a little bit dumb. It doesn't really know what you like and what what you don't like because everybody's very individual and you know what are the, what kind of messages they get. So um, you start to teach it, and after about twenty or thirty times of um, teaching what's good or spam, we've got a little thumbs up icon you press for. Th- for a good and a thumbs down um, icon for bad um, or spam and um, very quickly it starts to learn what is good and what is spam for your email
0: there's another feature that I uh, realized was there almost immediately when a message comes in you see a preview of it actually you see the whole message on the screen and then you can decide whether you want to delete it or not so you may have a message that's good it's from somebody that you you typically read messages from Uh, maybe you read it on the screen but you really don't want to save it, or maybe it's from a uh, list, and uh, the list is currently on some topic that you're really not interested in, Uh, you can just delete Mm -hmm. the message before it ever downloads. You don't mark it as bad. You just delete it, and that that seems to
1: be a very useful feature. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Mailwasher lets you read all your email on the server, and you can go, well, I don't really need that. um, I can read it in Mailwasher and um, just delete it. Um, so you actually only get the um, email that you want to keep in your
0: inbox. And one of the things I noticed in uh, poking around on the on your website is that Mailwasher seems to have a big brother in Mailwasher server. And this obviously wouldn't be intended for individual users but for installation on a server. The server would actually seem to be the ideal location for an anti-spam application, but so many of the uh, server-based applications are really cumbersome. Have you addressed that problem? Is it, is it something that's easy to
1: use? Yeah. Yes, yeah, no. We, um, we we intended it to be really, really easy to use. It's very easy to install and um, uses a lot of server-side techniques that we can't get on the on the desktop. So yeah, it's it's what it does email comes in and it, it basically filters um, all the spam and you get sent a list of um, emails you know, say every six hours that have been quarantined and you can rescue any that you like. So no, it's um, it's great and we've got a lot of users around the world who. Uh, find it very very useful
0: email is um, such a routine communication it just it feels familiar it feels safe yet it is probably perhaps undoubtedly the single most common vector for distributing viruses malware and other stuff either either by sending an attachment that's malware or by including a link to a site that's been compromised after I started using the mailwasher Pro application I noticed that you offer a Several other products that are designed to protect against rogue attachments or to organize routine messages into uh, into groups, so that users aren't repeatedly interrupted by email. That's something that uh, that happens to a lot of people at the office. Every minute, the the chime sounds, and you've got a new message, and you're, so you're constantly being interrupted. And you've got a way to uh, to reduce the interruptions. We launched
1: uh, this year a product called OK Inbox um, for Outlook. And um, yeah, because what we found is that um, people get annoyed by the inbox, and, they, and it takes them away from what they're um, what they're doing. You know, when they get a, a little ping every now and again um, for a new email. So um, this takes it away. It stops them actually seeing the new email unless it's an important email, and um, it hides them away, and then um, it delivers them all as in a digest at a later time. So it might be at lunchtime. Um, you get all all these sort of semi-important or unimportant
0: emails. Now looking at something that that you're working on for the future, uh, email privacy has certainly been in the news a lot recently and you've been working on an application called Encryptus. Uh, It's mentioned on the website, not yet available though. Email uh, is, is, some people compare it to a postcard because it's sent over a public network in plain text. I've always had a little bit of a problem with that comparison because postcards are only touched by a few people, but the public internet is, after all, the public internet. So email is Seems more like communicating via billboards in Times Square. Those who want to encrypt their messages uh, in the past, you know, could use a, an application like PGP. But the problem there is they first had to figure out how to use it, how to set it up, and. Regardless of the fact that this is supposedly an easy system uh, for most people, it's not an easy system. I presume, would presume from you know, looking at the other applications you've written, your goal is to make this process simple so that uh, someone of average intelligence and you know, really not a computer geek or an IT professional will be able to set it up and use it.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. Um, with with Encryptus, our goal is to, uh, for people who are privacy and security minded to um, have email encryption that just works um, without having to really set anything up. Um, so that's what we've done, and I think we've we've got there. It's because um, usability has always been a problem with um, email encryption. Um, that's why um, not many people use it. It's um, PGP is very very hard to set up, and it's pretty cumbersome to use. And also, um, a lot of these secure, secure email systems um, require you to change your email address, which no one really wants to do, or use some other system. Whereas we've uh, made encryptus so you can keep using your email address, plus your existing email program and
0: um, it just works. That's Nick Bolton, the developer of Mailwasher in New Zealand. So after viewing all of my email on the screen and deleting the ones that I don't want to keep or don't want to reply to, all I have to do is download the message that I do want to keep or do want to reply to. Mailwasher has an impressive number of settings options. I would recommend that new users just leave all of the settings alone until you've used Mailwasher for at least a few days, maybe even a couple of weeks. After the trial period, you'll know more about how the program works, and you'll be able to make reasonable decisions about how to change the default settings if you want to. Unlike Europeans, most Americans are monolingual. Exceptions would be in French speaking Quebec and areas of the U.S. Southwest where Spanish is often spoken. Generally, though, Americans don't speak Arabic, Baltic languages, Chinese, Hebrew, Greek, languages based on the Cyrillic alphabet, they don't speak Turkish or Vietnamese. So you can have Mailwasher mark any of the messages written in those languages as spam. But if a correspondence email program is set to use one of those languages while the person actually writes to you in English, some messages might be incorrectly identified as spam. Solution, add that person to your list of friends, then they'll no longer be marked as a spammer. Mailwasher maintains a detailed log, which means you can review it if you encounter a connection problem. In addition, when you delete a message, Mailwasher keeps a copy of it for a few days so that if you accidentally delete a message you want to keep, you can get it back. The bottom line for Mailwasher has to be five cats. If you want to eliminate spam, I really recommend you give Mailwasher a try. There is no magic bullet when it comes to eliminating spam, but Mailwasher comes about as close as anything I've seen. You can review all of your inbound messages on the server without having to download them. This alone makes it possible to eliminate malware in addition to spam try washer for a few days. You'll probably conclude, as I did, that this is one of the best options you'll find to clean up your mailbox. You'll find more information on the Mailwasher website, and guess what? You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. some people are afraid of cookies. That's never been my approach. Cookies generally are not dangerous. I mean the computer kind. The ones with calories in them, well, that's another story. And not even those terrible tracking cookies you hear much, so much about are really all that bad. Yes, your activities on the web can be tracked. And yes, this information can be used by people who want to serve advertisements to you on your computer. And to that I say, so what? If I have to see advertisements. And given the way the internet is constructed, I must see advertisements. So if I must, I'd at least prefer to see ads that might be of some interest to me, and that is what tracking cookies allow. But this doesn't mean that I give just anyone and everyone carte blanche to store cookies on my computer, nor does it mean that I don't care what systems are tracking me. I would like to know. That's why I use Ghostry. And with Halloween just passed, perhaps it's an appropriate time to talk about Ghostery. It's a handy plug-in that works with all major browsers, Firefox, Chrome, Safari, Opera, and even Internet Explorer. It's also a standalone application for Apple's iOS devices. Ghostery examines every web page the browser loads and lets you know about the presence of any scripts or images or other components that can be used to track your activities on the Internet. It can display a list of those companies when their code is present on the page if you want it to. If you find that annoying, you can turn it off. For example, when you load the TechBiter Worldwide site, Google Analytics and StatCounter scripts run. On some pages, you'll see "Share this code that allows readers to share articles on various social media sites. Now, instead of telling you what you should block, Ghostery provides information about what it finds. It's then up to you to decide whether the convenience provided by the component is sufficiently worthwhile to maintain it. The program gives you the option to allow or disallow any of the components, either globally or for a specific site. And if you find something you don't recognize, you can view Ghostery's Dictionary of Cookies and Trackers, and then you can decide whether to block a specific component. If you do that, Ghostery will prevent the tracker from contacting its originator or writing a cookie to your computer. If there's a site you trust implicitly, then you can whitelist it so that any trackers on that site will automatically be allowed. After installing Ghostery, you'll find a new icon on the browser's top toolbar. Just click the icon to gain access to the settings panel, or to view a short instructional video that describes how to use Ghostery. And Ghostery, by the way, is free. You can't even pay for it if you want to. Some browser plugins have free and paid versions. Many solicit donations. Ghostery is free, and they plan to keep it that way, according to the developers. And I quote: "We don't currently take donations for Ghostery. This isn't because we hate money; it's because we already have a successful business model. If you want to support us, please opt in to Ghost Rank." So that raises a question: What the heck is Ghost Rank? Selecting the option allows Ghostery to track the trackers anonymous information from the trackers is sent back to Ghostery. The company accumulates the data and creates reports, and it is those reports that provide the company's income. The specific information that GhostRank sends back to its developers include the name of the tracker, whether or not you're blocking it, the domain that the tracker reports to, how long it takes the page that the tracker is on to load, the tracker's position on the page, the version of Ghostry that you're using, and some log information such as your IP address. Now, the folks at Ghostry are adamant about not storing your IP address or providing it to anybody. So, while GhostRank allows Ghostry to share information with online marketing companies, the shared information does not include any personally identifiable information about you. As parent company Evadon explains, we also publish our own research and provide data to privacy researchers, analysts, and journalists. Additionally, organizations like the Better Business Bureau use GhostRank in the enforcement of privacy standards like the DAA Ad Choices Program. So bottom line for Ghostry, five cats. If you're wondering who's watching, Ghostry will help you find out. Ghostry is quick and easy to install because it's a plug-in. Just visit your browser's plugin site, select ghostry, and the rest is automatic. Ghostry even updates itself when the developers provide new capabilities. If you're nervous about applications reporting information to advertisers, the irony here is that Ghostry makes its money by reporting information to advertisers, but not information about you or your browsing habits. You'll find additional details on the Ghostry website, and there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits. Remember the Adobe hacker attack I told you about a few weeks ago? Well, it turns out it was somewhat larger than anybody thought. Adobe thought that information belonging to about 3 million users had been stolen. As it turns out, the actual count was more than 38 million. But perhaps even worse, thieves apparently made off with a substantial amount of Adobe's source code. Earlier this month, Adobe said that code for Acrobat, ColdFusion, and ColdFusion Builder had been stolen. Now it seems that the thieves also made off with some code for Photoshop. I recall visiting Adobe's Seattle campus several years ago and being told how when servers containing the source code were being moved from one location to another, the primary servers were sent in one truck, the backup servers loaded into another truck that took a different route. These companies do treat that intellectual property as being a very valuable asset, and now some of it's been stolen. The usernames that the crooks got are stored as plain text, but the passwords are encrypted. You might think that that would make everything safe. It doesn't. Encryption isn't a showstopper for thieves. It does slow them down, but eventually the passwords can be extracted. And considering that a single password is worth 10 to 20 bucks, and sometimes more... The crooks do have a reason to keep working. The never-ending list of reports about the National Security Agency continues not to end. National Security Agency, NSA, also known as No Such Agency. The latest allegation says the NSA has been working with the Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ, in England, and that together they tapped the fiber optic cables between Google's and Yahoo's servers in Europe and their headquarters in the U.S., The account ran this week in the Washington Post, and it quoted both Yahoo and Google executives angrily denying all knowledge of the snooping. The NSA continues to maintain that it focuses on foreign intelligence collection and does not intentionally spy on U.S. citizens, but the agency did not deny the allegations. An operation such as Google, which stores email messages and photos in highly secure facilities, would be a jackpot for operations such as the NSA. And security experts say that insertion of what's called a splitter device on a fiber optic cable could allow the agency to watch all traffic flowing between servers. As soon as airlines evaluate their equipment, passengers will be able to use certain devices at any time on an airplane. Devices such as computers and large tablets will still have to be stowed during takeoff and landing, but you'll be able to continue using smaller devices. The changes should go into effect on or before the 1st of January, 2014. No change for cell phones, though. These cannot be used when the airplane is in the air. In fact, they are not supposed to be used once the door has closed depending on the airline, use may be prohibited at other times too. The change is likely to apply to tablets, particularly the small ones, MP3 players, and smartphones, if they're switched to airplane mode, meaning no cellular connection, but Wi-Fi will still be possible if the device is so equipped and most airplanes these days have onboard Wi-Fi. Delta and JetBlue quickly announced that they will submit their plans to the FAA for validation. Details of the changes are on the FAA's website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. An advisory committee recommended these changes back in September. Passengers will still be told to turn off electronic devices when the flight attendants give those needlessly verbose pre-flight safety briefings that explain how a seatbelt buckle works but it's likely that passengers will simply continue to ignore the explanations. Airlines will be able to determine whether passengers will be required to stow those smaller devices during takeoff and landing. Most airlines probably won't have you do that. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blynn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.